Welcome to the Midweek Bible Study with Ben Schaefer, the podcast where we dive deep into the timeless wisdom of Scripture, one verse at a time. I'm your host, Ben Schaefer, and I'm thrilled to have you join on our journey through the pages of the Bible. We are currently studying the fifth book in the New Testament called The Acts of the Apostles. So grab your Bible, something to write with, and let's get started. All right, Father in Heaven, thank you so much for the fact that we're here, this this little special group of people. Um, I say special because it truly is my belief that it's your directing uh, anytime we open God's Word together as brothers and sisters in Christ and ask the Holy Spirit to direct us and guide us and teach us with your divine Word, your inspired Word, that you, in fact, are behind drawing people to this study. It's not just an intellectual popularity contest. It's not a, uh, a marketing thing. It's your spirit drawing your people. And so, Lord, I want to. I just want to throw out a, a big prayer of protection over these people. I want to pray that that your uh, your presence would be real in their life, and that they would understand that it's not easy doing this stuff. And that's the point: that we wouldn't just go for the easy, but we would have stamina and courage and strength to look square in the eyes of what your truth says, and have that contrast once and for all with what the world says and what. Your, your scripture says what your truth is, and may it sanctify our lives as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. Midweek Bible study, here we are. Everybody, welcome to the other side of a short break. Thank you for allowing that to happen. Um, I had a wonderful time. Um, I read scripture the entire time and deep dove myself into uh, deep biblical studies. No, I'm just joking. I, I, uh, I definitely had a wonderful time off, so thank you for that. But we're going to go right back into where we left off in the book of Acts, chapter 5. You guys remember the the dramatic and, I would say, very sad story that punctuated our final gathering uh, the last time we we met, which was Acts 5a. If you haven't uh, listened to that, make sure you jump online and check that out. But we got to verse 7 of chapter 5. We actually left off around uh, verse 11, but I'd like to hit reverse and go back to chapter seven, uh, chapter 5, verse 7, and jump right back into the dramatic, crazy, crazy story of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, I'm sure you biblical scholars have heard of that name before, perhaps not, but let's dive right back into the, the, the moment after the, uh, the death of Ananias. Uh, Ananias was the husband of a wife named Sapphira. And if you guys remember, they held back some things uh, from the church, Held uh, more importantly, held back some information <clears throat> from God. Uh, they sold a piece of property, as was popular back in, back in the early church. After the church broke out, people were as, quote, of one accord to the point where they were holding their earthly possessions like this completely loose, completely loosely in their hands. They were not manipulated. They were not coerced. They were not shamed to do this. They were motivated 
by love, the Bible says, for one another. What does loving one another in the body of Christ produce? This. That's what it produces. Amen? I mean, doesn't that just make sense? You've maybe experienced that, maybe not. But if you are coerced, if you're shamed, if you're manipulated, this will not be the response. Instead, what we see is the very strange dispensation. And I'm going to use this word dispensation, uh, this, this study, a lot. But I want to go, I want to dive into that word dispensation of a dispensation of God's grace clearly in view for the new covenant for the first time being called the church. Okay, so let's dive in there. I, as always, I'd love somebody who's really good at narrating and speaking loudly. Let's ver let's have you read out of the Bible, Acts chapter 5, verse 7 through 11. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. <laughs> Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Okay, so they're at a camp. These believers actually started camping out together. We don't do that today. We always have to have these pretty little houses. But back then, it was normal to just camp under a tent and to these, these big tent cities, and they build these communities. And here we are. We are at the scene of a death of a, of a man who was a believer, guys. He's a believer. We have evidence of this in Scripture. And he brings to the camp the earnings of the sale of his property. And if you guys remember, he withheld the entire amount for his wife and himself, just for a little rainy day fund. Well, here we go. An hour later, or he drops over uh, dead, and they carry his body out. An hour later, his wife arrives without knowledge of her husband's predicament. So we have a, an hour later, his wife coming back. Yeah, three hours. Sorry, yes, three hours. So his what his his wife comes back and says, hey, what happened to my husband? And by this point, we can imagine many things have transpired. Can you imagine some of those things? I can. Like maybe uh, there, there were some major scared people. <laughs> I mean, if we went to church tomorrow... Uh, this week, and our our one of our church members dropped over dead, and the ambulance was called, et cetera, et cetera. I think that would strike some fear into some people. What happened? What happened? What happened? Well, by this time, the word about Ananias must have spread quickly throughout this tent city and the community of the believers. But somehow, Sapphira did not hear about her husband, so she's coming in completely ignorant about what happened. And perhaps because they didn't know what to tell her is why she didn't have anything of information. Also, there's probably no reason to warn her because no one have, would assume that she had anything to do with Ananias' death. But 
these men were um yeah these men were running the finances uh this this is a normal thing that men ran the finances of the community and the women had little to say about it this was an interesting tidbit about jewish culture because this is again a very significant lesson in our day-to-day -day life that men and women both that though culturally they had different roles in the eyes of god they both sinned together they did something together as hypocritical in the eyes of God. So in this case, she had known of her husband's decision before she walked in the tent, didn't she? Notice the text doesn't say that she agreed to it or even condoned it. It's because the man makes the call there and the woman said nothing. She just knew about it. That's it. She knew about what her husband had done. She knew about the financial decision. Does that make sense? So how? So now she comes to Peter and he asks her if she sold her property for the proposed price that Ananias told Peter. He gave her an opportunity to come clean. You see that? Her opportunity for repentance and confession was right there. I mean, if I was her, I would have been shaken in my boots because I would have suspected something was amiss at this point because how often does Peter ask you about financial decisions? How often does Peter go, hey, what was the price that you sold that land? I would have been like, oh, I'm caught. We got caught. But she didn't. She didn't do that. And her conscience, probably, I'm making a probably here, but I'm going to guess she was deep down convicted. Nevertheless, she decides to do something, and I want you guys to see this. She decided to, she made a decision that it's better to sin with her husband than to be loyal to God. She made a decision to be loyal to her husband, over loyalty to God's promises. This is the question that I have to ask you guys. Do you believe God's promises? They knew about God's promises. So this is a deeper thing than just, oh, I kind of I said a little white lie about my finances, isn't it? She says, yep, that's all we received. That was the total. That was all we got, my husband and I. It was a lie. It wasn't just a lie. It's loyalty to her husband in sinning with him rather than to go to God's truthfulness. Sticking with God's truthfulness is always harder than to stick in with the lies, isn't it? It's exposing. It makes you feel funny. <laughs> It calls you out, doesn't it? It makes truth, truth hurts. Have you ever had somebody say that? Truth hurts. Well, this is what happened. She decided to take her husband's side. So when, you remember, by the way, she didn't know her husband's dead, still at this point. So when Peter named the price, the specific price, think about this. She must have known that her husband had already told Peter what the price was. You see? 
Rather than admit her husband had lied to him, she agreed with the statement, perhaps to protect her husband's reputation. Doesn't that just like stir up some thoughts about what you've done as a businesswoman or a businessman in the last couple years of your life? I mean, I I oftentimes pause at this story and go, "Dang, I don't. I, I'm done. I don't even want to listen to this, man. I'm. I'm. Whew. I mean, because like, listen. I mean, this is like this is rampant. S loyalty to man over loyalty to God. Isn't this the pharisaical way? I mean, it's just painful to watch. So honoring her husband comes second, no matter what." to honoring the Lord. That's what should have taken place. Can I throw out a big should? What should have happened is that she goes, nobody, not even my husband, comes before honoring God. Period. So I have to ask the question, does your walk with God give God glory, or does it give a man or woman glory? Whew. That's hard, right? Peter's question suggests when he asked her the price, he had made no predetermination. De you see that? He, he, had, he wasn't going, I'm going to catch. He, he's not going to go, I'm ca I caught Justin in an act right now. He was honestly going, Justin, just tell me. You know, Andre, just tell me. Steve, just tell me the answer. You know, he had not condemned her at this point. He wasn't sure if she had been involved in the decision. You see that? So Peter gives her the chance to vindicate herself. Instead, when she answered, she incriminated herself. Based on her answer, she was convicted just as was her husband. In fact, guys, this is kind of gross, but it says when she fell over dead, they picked up her dead body and threw her on her husband's dead body face to face. In the Greek, when it says, when Steve read the scripture, when you tear apart the word beside, when he was she was laid beside her husband's dead body, it was actually facing. The two faces were facing each other. It's kind of gruesome, but it's very graphic. Peter's question suggests that, I, in my opinion, that he knew he knew he had the jurisdiction. You know, he had the jurisdiction of an apostolic power, but yet he still had the human condition of not wanting to see this sad thing happen. But nevertheless, God's justice always prevails. So they carry out her body, and. It's it's a it's a it's a cry in shame, as some would say. It's a terrible scene. People are so excited about the movement of the church. We're at like ten thousand people, guys. I mean, there's a lot of people in these tents, and this is the first shade that was thrown. This is the first negative thing. So Ananias showed loyalty to money over God, and Sapphira showed loyalty to her husband over the Lord. It's a successive situation, isn't it? Loyalty to money over God. And, her, and, her, and his wife showed loyalty to himself over the Lord. Ananias and Sapphira will never be forgotten. We are still talking about them, aren't we? 
both sins resulted in what? Death. Dead. They're dead. They're, they're gone. Have you ever wondered about the fact whether or not those two were believers? I bet not. Because I didn't. Until I had, I feel like the Holy Spirit was like, hey, hey, uh, what do you think about that? And when I started thinking about it, I, I went back into the story, and you will see evidence that these two were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Interesting, isn't it? We'd like to demonize them. We'd like to give them that cruel fate of all unbelievers. But not necessarily, is it? Both sins resulted in a physical death off the planet. They're gone. Their skin suits have been evacuated. <laughs> this situation achieved the desired result. Great fear among the people. I want you guys to hang on to that. This is a discipline of God that results in a specific and finite, uh, what's the word, uh, calculated result. And it's been this way the entire narrative of Scripture. When God dispensates His grace, there's always a sin that happens. And I'm going to go into this farther, but then there's a punishment from God. And let me explain this in a little bit. Consider how this impacted the local church, a.k.a. the first church. In fact, you notice in verse, what, 11? What's it say? Does it use the word church in your Bible? That's the first time the word church is used in the book of Acts. Might want to underline it. Isn't that crazy? The real word for church, ecclesia, the word for church is never used until that moment in the book of Acts. There were great fear in this church, within the church, among who had heard of the events. May I suggest a couple of things that happened? It was a great warning for hypocrites, wasn't it? If you were thinking about, let's just say, being a shyster and doing what they were going to do, maybe they just hasn't, haven't done it yet. Maybe they're on the negotiation tables. What do you think they went and did after they heard? They came clean. I want you guys to picture two dead bodies. I mean, this is a little graphic. Two dead bodies, Ananias and Sapphira, laying out in front of you. Now, I'm going to just tell you guys, if you're seeing two dead bodies, you're asking yourself, why, why are they dead, right? Well, they became God's illustration for any hypocrite within the church for the next hundred years. I'm telling you, a hundred years. Those dead bodies got in the way of their hypocritical actions, didn't they? They went, hey, you know what? I'm going to play the church on this one. I'm going to hold back some some uh, some finances, let's say, from a from a sale that I that I made of land. And they went, oh, oh, there's two dead bodies. You see, this is what God's punishment does to the believer, and it is supposed to be the end result inside the church. Don't we oftentimes see God's punishment as nothing else but pain? That's it. We don't see it as a tool. We don't see it as a, a dispensation of grace. Doesn't it 
say in Scripture that those he loves, he what? Disciplines. Interesting, isn't it? Okay, so let's go on to, oh, first, first off, here's a little a bonus. Check out 1 Samuel 16, 7 on your own time. And then Revelation 2, 23, to make my point, some proof text, that God is concerned about the purity of the church. That just hit me before the, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, before the class, I was like, God, what do you want me to say? And he dumped those two verses on me. 1 Samuel 16, 7. In Revelation 2.23, it is not up to you to purify the church. It's Jesus' role. He alone controls the church, no matter what. All right, let's get back online. The first mention of the word church in the book of Acts, I already told you that, and it emphasizes how God was at work in this event, forming a cohesive whole. He's in charge. So let me do a little exercise with you guys. I love whiteboards, as you guys know. Uh, and hopefully you online can see this, but I want to get a little exercise about this right here. The parallel of the narrative of the Old Testament and stories that I can just come up with on my own, you guys will come up with your own, but I want to do a little exercise with y'all about when God dispensation, a dispensation of God's grace uh, equated or affected a sin a man sinned, man sinned, and then, then produced God's punishment. All right? God's grace, man's sin, God's punishment. Think about that for a second. Let me give you some options. So the first one is God's innocence, the innocence of disp the dispensation of innocence. All right? Produced in the garden, Adam. Adam sinned. Last time I read my scripture, Adam sinned. And it was met with a very serious problem. What did he do? Let's say uh, uh, tree of life, fruit, right? What happened after he dispensed, he, 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 the, the grace that he dispensed was innocence to the human race. It was met with our what? Mistake, sin, screw up, I guess what you'd say. You know, but some people would call it, I messed, we messed up. We sinned against God. Did God look the other way and go, that's cool, dude. Maybe you'll get it next time. No, he had to do something. What did he do? Curse. He kicked us out. And if we he wouldn't have kicked us out, what would have happened? Eternally damned. We would be eternal creatures of sin. He cursed the earth for our benefit that we may die and rise again. All to the glory of Jesus Christ. It's incredible. Think about this. Okay, here's another one. The dispensation of conscience. You guys are like, what are you talking about? Well, here's here's the next one. It's Cain, Abel. What happened there? Cain's murder. Murder was committed for the first time. What did God say? Hey, no big deal. Brothers fight all the time. No big deal, right? 
No, he didn't. He didn't do that. He had a very serious response, didn't he? He had absolutely, I'm going to call it blood. And that's a deep, that's a deep story. But the blood became a symbol, the blood of Abel crying out to God saying, hey, we got to do something about this. <laughs> God dispensed, man sinned, and God punished. Remember that the the uh, the next one. What would be the next one in the story of Genesis? I'm going to give you a hint. Civil government. Civil government was an institution that God made. It wasn't. It wasn't like He was just planning on letting us do a free for all. He instigated a civil government, and then what did we do? Tower, Babel, not good enough, not good enough, God. We're gonna be, we're gonna be gods. We're gonna do what Shem did. We're gonna be the bloodline of the seed of Christ. We're gonna be gods. So we're gonna build a big brick building. <laughs> it's so funny. It's almost humorous to me, but I'm I'm a I'm a human, so I'm guilty as well. What is God's punishment? language disperse it's cause and effect you guys see this punctuates moments of god's dispensation we wouldn't know what god's dispensation is without the punishment it's a paradox isn't it it's an interesting thing to think about here's another one patriarchal rule patriarchal rule we demanded it didn't we we wanted it remember so the sodom and gomorrah situation yep that's the next one sodom and gomorrah we totally messed that up we completely botched it well you guys remember the salt pillar you remember he blew up the city last one dispensation of law he had to do something he had to go i have to tell my generation of humans my people my israel my my children i have to give them a law book right well you guys know what happened right the the jews whipped out a calf that's not good enough i need a calf i need something that i can see don't throw that away as if, like, you guys have never done that. We worship calves all the time because God's law isn't good enough. Well, what happens? He makes a very serious point. I mean, guys, I mean, I could just say death, right? I mean, people died for, for even so much as, you know, winking wrong after the law. You guys have no idea. We have no idea what it's like to live under the Judeo law. The Mosaic Law. I'll say it, the Mosaic Law. We underestimate God's uh, justice and overestimate His grace, don't we? We underestimate His, his uh, wrath and, underestimate, and overestimate His forgiveness. 
That's the Christianity that we were brought up into. Each major dispensation of God's grace includes an early failure of man. Are you guys depressed about the fact that you're a man or woman right now? Well, luckily, thank God, literally thank God, right now, that He knew that about us. And in response to the sin that we commit, God merits a serious and unique punishment that addresses the sin, listen to this, while making the point. Addressing the sin while making the point. And the effect of that response is to warn others and cause obedience within the group. In our, I want you guys to see this parallel to Acts <laughs> 5. Do you see what happened? We are square in the middle of another dispensation of God's grace. And it's punctuated by a punishment that will forever be etched in the heads and minds and hearts of the body of Christ. And in that sense, God's stern response is a form of grace in itself, since it motivates others to respect God's decrees, at least initially, and to some extent. Here we see a sin occurring early in the church age, and God responds through Peter with a unique and very stern response. And it had its intended consequence that is to dissuade, ooh, there's a big word, others from following in their footsteps, the hypocritical way. I am this way in front of people, but I'm this way when I'm not. God's grace always leads to the failure of man. Is that depressing? Is that too harsh? But it's true, isn't it? Mankind always drops the ball. Like we're we're completely inadequate to carry the grace that he dispensates. And it demonstrates the seriousness of this covenant that we're in the middle of right now. This is not the free time. This is not the time to just throw caution to the wind and think God is just Santa Claus. And they're up in heaven wanting to make your dreams come true. That's the American gospel. The truth is, is that this is not, this is a walk of faith, a fellowship, as much as a fellowship. Works will never get you into heaven. Never. But as you guys read those two scriptures I mentioned before, God is in directing, He is directing His church members as a whole. To be sanctified. Finally, it reminded the church that in that day when they saw those two dead bodies that judgment will begin at the house of God. As Peter himself wrote in 1 Peter 4.17, check this out. It says this, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will we be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And I'm thinking that Peter totally had Ananias and Sapphira in his mind when he wrote that. Centuries and centuries go by, and here we are still talking about it. Based on the combination of strong leadership, stern response to sin, and the supernatural display of the Holy Spirit, the, earth, the early church blew up, went 
just exploded. It flourished. Acts chapter 5, verse 12 through 16. Somebody shout it out. 12 through 16. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. <laughs> all of them were healed. No big deal. I love that. Notice again that the signs and wonders of the early church were coming at the hands of the apostles and not everybody. That's an important distinction. And the people were not, they were not, they were of one accord, which means one mind, one moving organism with one mind, one goal, one shared set of ideals. Andre and I talk about this all the time. The definition of culture is the shared set of ideals. This implies that they had one single mind about their purpose and their doctrines and their understanding of God's truth in the church. Let me say that again. Their purpose, their doctrines, and their understanding of who God is when it, in, in regards to the church. Do you? Maybe you guys go to church. Maybe you don't go to church. I'm not condemning you if you don't. But if you are a part of a local body of Christ, a local church, maybe it's this church, that church, that church, the other church. Hold on, just you know, like I'm I'm not judging you if it's Methodist or Catholic or what have you. Do you know those three things? Your purpose, your doctrine, and God <laughs> in regards to the church, capital C. Luke seems to contrast the miracles and the common mind of the early church with the disobedience of Ananias and Sapphira in his literary mechanism. You see that? How he flips. He goes, whoop. He totally flips to, yeah, that just happened, but let's do something in contrast in my literary mechanism to show you what happened next. And they were meeting in Solomon's portico. Do you guys know what Solomon's portico is? So outside the Jerusalem, uh, in the temple in Jerusalem, it's still in effect. Remember, we're still before 70 AD. Uh, and Solomon's portico is this huge pillared porch. It's covered. It's kind of shaded. So the old campground isn't working out so good anymore. So we got to go somewhere where there's a big gathering area. We're talking 10,000 people. Like, we're talking... Uh, Mardi Gras or uh, what am I thinking of? Uh, Woodstock. Picture Woodstock. You know, I think in our in our little childhood felt graph minds, we think a large crowd assembled, and it's like five felt graph little Bethlehem characters. No, we're talking ten thousand, a mob, a huge mob of believers. So they're under the shade of the portico of Solomon. And this was, uh, this was the name given to the covered part of the court of the Gentiles part of the temple. I don't know if you guys have ever been there. There's a specific part 
where they call it the court of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles can actually approach the temple, but they cannot go any farther than a certain point. By some estimates, they say that there was 10,000 people on that day in the portico. Uh, the previous meeting locations weren't big enough, and they needed a bigger venue. And so in verse 13, Luke mentions that the rest of them dared not associate with the early church. Did you guys ever wonder who those people are? Who's the rest of them, do you guys think? I mean, they could be the Gentiles. Is that what he's talking about? Could he be like Ananias and Sapphira's family? I mean, so, I mean, this isn't a trick question. Them refers to all of the other Jews who haven't believed in Christ. The Jews in Jerusalem, they probably were scared to death of what the Pharisees were going to do to them. And they may have also feared the power of the apostles as displayed in the death of Ananias and Sapphira. I'm just being honest. I think I kind of would be a little bit scared. But then Luke adds that they held the early Christian church, the Christians, in what? They held them in what? High esteem. The early church modeled nearly perfectly the biblical principle that the church must be salt and light to the world. So they gave them props, as my kids would say. I don't know what that means. They gave them some cred. The church stood out and remained separate from the Jewish society somehow. And yet the way they stood apart brought respect, two words, respect and appreciation. And ultimately, third word, glory to God. If you guys want the three recipe, the, the three spices that need to be in the soup, <laughs> it's going to be respect, appreciation, and glory to God. That's the outcome of the outside looking in to what we're doing as the church. Is that happening today? <laughs> At least until widespread persecution began back then, the church wasn't perceived as a negative or disruptive or strident or prideful institution. It was helpful. In fact, the Romans were actually noted in historian, uh, secular historians to be jealous of the utopian government that they seem to be propping up. They've been trying to do that with the logo of Roman culture was what? A sword. They tried to make what only Jesus could do through the power of the Holy Spirit through a sword. We're going to kill you if you're not nice to people. <laughs> you know, this is not the way Jesus works. So they fully expected Paul that the they... They completely, I'm sorry if I said Paul, I don't know why I said Paul, Peter, they, they totally expected Peter to be either a total liar or a total prophet of God, meaning, meaning whoa, I got to listen to this guy, aka an apostle. It's very polarizing in those days. So they fulfilled the expectation, oh yeah, Paul, right here, 2 Corinthians, gave in his letter in the Corinthian church, to the Corinthian church, I'm going to read it for time's sake, but it's verse 14 of chapter 6, 2 Corinthians. It says, do this. He says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. 
For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Which is a, a demon god. Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what ag argue, agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God says in the Old Testament, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. Paul goes further on Romans 12, 13, exhorting the church to be good citizens. <laughs> what? And respectful persons in their community and in their church. I don't see a lot of that happening right now. Honoring one another and obeying civil authorities. At some time, Paul commands the church in Romans 12, 2, not to be conformed to the world. Do you see? Not conforming to the world, but obedient to civil authorities, trusting that God is at work. Here we see what kind of life that's in view can produce. The church of one accord, clearly not conforming to the world around them, yet still giving a good witness. Man, that's convicting for me. And all the while, God continues to grow the early church within the city of Jerusalem. Despite the fear among the Jews of the city, the Lord kept adding to the church. Here's a powerful lesson on how to grow the church, y'all. By the way, if I was going to interview you, one, 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 everybody on Zoom here, everybody on the call, everybody in the room, if I gave you a, a test and I said one, one question, fill in the blank, the best church growth strategy is what? What, what immediately, I'm not asking for what you should answer, what immediately popped in your, you know, you can put Jesus in there. I mean, that everybody's going to put Jesus. Like my kid, you know, at Sunday school, it's like, what do you learn today, Jesus? What would initially pop out of your mind, pop out of your mouth? Children's programs? Good, good music, outreach? Good communication? A good brand? Oh, yeah. We need a logo that's marketable. It's, I'm not being, I hope I'm not being condescending. I'm talking to myself here. What is a good church growth strategy? Truth. Hmm. That's a great word for it. Notice that the people are flocking to the faith in Jerusalem despite their fear of the new movement. They may have respected the movement, but they weren't attracted to it in a traditional sense. You know what I mean by that? They're not attracted to it because it's splashy. They're not attracted to it because it's the next get-rich-quick scheme. Or I'm going to be pros uh, prosperous. It's, it's a different draw, I'll put it that way. It wasn't attractive. It was scary. Maybe that's a little too harsh. Think about it. Did you go to a church lately because it was scary and different? <laughs> I don't think so. Did you gather together with a body of Christ that would be considered scary and, and unattractive, maybe a little, uh, little uh, I always used to call it like 
uh, a family reunion uh, with crazy cousin Eddie sitting at the front row, uh, sneezing every five seconds and saying awkward things. Are you attracted to that? No. A little different. I'm not going. It's a little scary. I'm not going. And yet we see the church swelling in size. What's going on? This defies logic. This pattern defies the church growth strategy, teaching that recent in recent decades that suggests churches grow only by pandering to the wants and needs of a said community. That's the wrong answer. On the contrary, the church grows when the Lord adds to its numbers and grow from any other source growth it growing from any other source is false growth we see this in the book of acts here don't we and yes it's possible to grow a church without relying on the lord did you guys know that you can fill buildings with so many people i could build an incredible organization for example and fill it with people just centered around the, the, the theme music or the theme Afghan making <laughs> you know? or re football. Hmm, there, that strikes at the Nebraskan. Taylor Swift, exactly. I mean, we got stadiums full of people. So again, critical mass does not equate growth of the true church. The growth can be numeric, a.k.a. more bodies in the, in the room, but not spiritual, a.k.a. not believers. Now, to properly understand verse 15, I need you guys to get your little pins out. We need to take a note of a parenthetical statement. Do you guys know what that is? Basically, I need you to, to write a parenthesis in, in verse 12, let's go back to verse 12. Luke starts by saying that many signs and wonders were happening at the hands of the apostles. Then in the second half of that verse, Luke mentions how they were gathered in the temple. What's going on? Why do you do that? Well, to understand the narrative, we need to insert an open parenthesis. You know what an open parenthesis is? The left side of the parenthesis. Need to, we need to stick the parentheses before the statement about being one accord. So do that in your Bible. Take your little your little pen and put it before the statement before uh, it says this, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. Parentheses. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. Listen to this. That parenthetical statement does not end until verse 14. You cannot, so go to the end of 14 and put the end of the parentheses in. Okay? It is, an, it, it is describing the way, it's an aside. You know what that means? It's, it's a, oh yeah, Luke's going, oh yeah, by the way. This is not in conjunction with what he just said. He put it in parentheses in the original language. My Bible totally botches it and does not put a parenthesis in there. It is in the original language. So they were set apart and feared, yet respected. That's what, it, so go ahead and just read that real quick. If you, if you read it to yourself, does it make more sense? It should. 
they were set apart and feared, yet respected, and they still attracted great numbers. And then the parentheses ends. Now in verse 15, Luke returns to his original thought at the first half of verse 12. So place the first half of verse 12 together with verse 15. What does it say? And the narrative makes more sense. The apostles were performing many miracles to such an extent that the people of Jerusalem began to bring their sick to Peter for healing. Doesn't that make more sense? Just his shadow could cause healing, he said. Very interesting. This it, right here has formed entire denominations of churches. That parenthesis is a big deal. Good-hearted, great pastors, loves church, loves his people. God bless them. They're going to go through this, and they're going to create doctrines out of, out of something that's not accurately biblical. Unfortunately, it happens all the time, and I'm, I'm guilty just as anybody. That's why biblical scholarship is so important to what we're doing. So place the first half. You did that. The apostles were performing all these miracles. And according to verse 16, they were all being healed. Their behavior was not superstition. I put that down because that's a big deal in our church right now. It was a rational response to the power Peter was demonstrating in the city. It's not people were just coming to hopefully rub a lamp. It's, it, by the way, here's another sign of true, apostle, uh, true working of the Holy Spirit. It works. <laughs> it, it, it works. A true mark of an apostle goes up to somebody and heals them. Have you had an apostle do that? I mean, I'm not trying to make an argument out of anything. I'm just saying, isn't it unique? Isn't it funny how little that can happen? And if it doesn't happen, we blame it on, oh, the person didn't have enough faith. Oh, the environment wasn't quite right. The musician hit the wrong chord. God just isn't interested anymore. No, when Peter was dispensing apostolic power, it, it worked. It worked, y'all. It was a rational response. It wasn't, well, maybe if I can just, just make it to the front, maybe God will have mercy on me. Nope, every single time. It was like turning on a light, a light switch. It wasn't, well, it didn't work this time. Try it again. It's like starting a lawnmower. God's miracles don't start like old, rusty lawnmowers. You can, you can quote me on that one. Clearly, God was using Peter in his role as the early leader of the church to manifest supernatural power to punctuate a specific moment in time. And the manifestation brought God and his church glory. Oh man, I'm running out of time. It probably doesn't surprise you to hear that false teachers have turned this passage and used it to defend the prosperity gospel in one word. What do you think it is? All. The fact that all were healed in this instance is used as proof text that God has to heal everyone. Guys, Wow, that's a big doctrinal statement right there. That literally the only thing holding you back from physical healing is your faith? This is simply bad exegesis of Scripture. If you look at the context, Luke is describing an event 
not prescribing something for every Christian. You remember me talking about prescriptive versus descriptive? This is, again, a, 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 a problem that we're facing right now. The church leadership is struggling with this. As we might imagine, it also brought a lot of negative attention among God's enemies. So we got to finish off, guys. Here we go. Verse uh, 17. But the high priest rose up along with his, all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy, and they laid hands on the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gate of the prison, and taking them out, he said, Go, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of, the, of this life. Remember that. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest and the associates came, they called together the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and they sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison. And they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors. But when we had opened, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what could have come of this. But someone came and reported to them, The men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people right now. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. What a curious and, may I say, humorous series of events. Can you just, like, see that? Whoa, wait a minute. You, there's nobody in the jail cell, you know? So first, we begin with jealousy among the Sadducees. i got to point this out really quick because we only got a few more minutes. They were jealous. They were insanely jealous. And here comes these untrained men that were fishermen, saying stuff like they're wrong and that Jesus rose from the grave. Well, the Greek language implies that they were controlled by their jealousy. So they lay hands on Peter and other apostles and put them in jail. This would have been the same jail as they were just in the night before. And that very night, though the Lord sets the apostles free by means of an angel. No big deal. This is the first of three times in the book of Acts that an angel sets someone free from jail. First one is, the, uh, the in the first case, the audience are Jewish authorities. In the second case, they're Roman authorities. And in the third case, they're Greek, they're the Greek population of Philippi. There's three times an angel busts somebody out of jail. And each time, there's a specific audience for a specific reason, for a specific cause that God specifically wanted to do. But their release comes with a command. Go back to where you were and start preaching the gospel. That's what the whole message of life, but specifically, not just the gospel, but the resurrection of Christ. This is a very, very, uh, a very terrible thing to hear if you're a Sadducee. Why? Because they don't believe in resurrection. So the angel goes, go back and preach the gospel, but specifically, don't forget to mention that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and conquered sin and, and death and Hades. God is clearly teaching the apostles to respond boldly to persecution. The story then gets really hilarious to me. The Sanhedrin calls together this guy, uh, this guy named Gamaliel, and I'm going to 
finish off right here. It says verse 27. When they had brought them, they stood before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. He wouldn't even mention Jesus' name. Do you notice that? And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one who, whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of all these things. And so in the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. Jumping to the end, we absolutely see them uh, getting furious. And this man named Gal uh, uh, Gamaliel stands up and proceeds to say some wisdom. And he says this in verse 34. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. Here, get rid of them. Put them outside. I got something to say. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, uh, Thudius rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And then after that man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the day of the census and drew away some people after him, too. He, too, then perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you will be found fighting against God. They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged him and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. This is Gamaliel, the famous Gamaliel, Paul's, the Apostle Paul's teacher. Paul learned what he knew of Jewish pharisaical law from Gamaliel. He was an elder statement, statesman of the day. He made it into to historical records. He was very, very astute. I could tell you more and more. I'm, I'm going to post a, a, a commentary about Gamaliel that's very, very fascinating. But guys, they flogged him. Guys, you know how many times they were whipped? They were whipped. They were whipped 65 times apiece with a cat of nine tails. It was absolutely gut-wrenching bloody. Don't think that this wasn't something, it wasn't just a little slap on the hand. They were bleeding. So they respond in what? You will see next week how they respond. This is an absolute implication of where we're at in our life, and I hope you guys have taken some sort of application in your own life as to where you're at with the church, with the Holy Spirit, the presence of God in your life, walking in step with the Holy Spirit, as the Bible says. And what does it mean? What does it mean, this justice of God thing? I want you guys to wrestle with that because I don't want you walking away from these just feeling all warm and fuzzy all the time. It's okay that the Bible convicts a little bit. He's convicting me right now. And I guess I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and just fire off the reflection questions and then we're done. What is your current response to God when you think of his dispensation of mercy? Number two, do you believe that God will keep his promises or not? That's a big one. 
That's kind of like a faith question. Number three, does the way you stand apart right now from the rest of the world bring about respect and appreciation and ultimately glory to God? Do you truly believe Jesus is in charge of the growth of the church? That's going to impact the way you live. And then lastly, are you willing to submit to the punishment that comes from earthly authorities when forced to obey God over man? Because it will happen. I mean, it, I'm, I don't want to be a doomsday. I'm just saying... I'm just saying that's the natural outcome of following God. It's not the way of man. It's the way of God. And when earthly authorities contradict what God says, get ready for punishment. Guys, I truly hope that this has been a blessing to you. I hope this last half of, of chapter 5 has stirred up some sort of Holy Spirit sanctification work in your life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the fact, again, <clears throat> that your word is alive and that we can find life in it that brings life and joy to our earthly bodies. We know that in the Psalms it says, deep cries unto deep, and our soul understands that a little bit more when we open Scripture, is that our soul bears witness to the truth that it is truth. It's not a, just a mental exercise or a mental ascent. We just, we're so in awe of your Holy Spirit. We're awe. We're in awe that you work with people in the work of sanctification. Not to mention saving us. Oh, what an awesome God you are. The fact that you dispense your grace is mind-boggling to me. After all we've done, you still work. You're still moving. You're still flowing and healing. We pray for a, a safety. We pray for a, a great a great rest of the week, and may we all return back here this time next week to open up what chapter 6 has to say in the book of Acts. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.